William Wilson continued. It was about the same period, if I remember aright, that in an altercation of violence with him, in which he was more than openly thrown off his guard, and spoke and acted with an openness of demeanor rather foreign to his nature, I discovered, or fancied I discovered, in his accent, his air, and general appearance, a, som a something that first startled, and then deeply interested me, by bringing to mind dim visions of my earliest infancy, wild, confused, and thronging memories of a time when memory herself was yet unborn. I cannot better describe the sensation that oppressed me than by saying that I could with difficulty shake off the belief of my having been acquainted with the being who stood before me at some epoch very long ago, some point of the past even infinitely remote. The delusion, however, faded rapidly as it came, and I mentioned it at, at all but to define the day of the last conversation I there held with my singular namesake. The huge old house, with its countless subdivisions, had several large chambers communicating with each other, where slept the greater number of the students. There were, however, as must necessarily happen in a building so awkwardly planned, many little nooks or recesses, the odds and ends of the structure, and that the economic in ingenuity of Dr. Bransby had also fitted up as dormitories, although, being the mere merest closets, they were capable of accommodating but a single individual. One of these small apartments was occupied by Wilson. One night, about the close of my fifth year at the school, and immediately after the altercation just mentioned, finding everyone wrapped in sleep, I rose arose from bed, and, lamp in hand, stole through a wilderness of narrow passages from my own bedroom to that of my rival. I had long been plotting one of these ill-natured pieces of practical wit at his expense, in which I had hitherto been so uniformly unsuccessful. It was my intention now to put my scheme into operation, and I resolved to make him feel the whole extent of the malice with which I was imbued. Having reached his closet, I noiselessly entered, leaving a lamp with a shade over it on the outside. I advanced a step and listened to the sound of his tranquil breathing. Assured of his being asleep, I returned, took the light, and with it again, again approached the bed. Close curtains were around it, which, in the prosecution of my plan, I slowly and quietly withdrew, when the bright rays fell vividly upon the sleeper and my eyes at the same moment upon his countenance. I looked, and a dumbness and iciness of feeling instantly pervaded my frame. My breast heaved, my knees tottered, my whole spirit became possessed with an objectless yet intolerable horror. Gasping for breath, I lowered the lamp in still nearer proximity to the face. Were these, were these the lineaments of William Wilson? I saw, indeed, that they were his, but I shook as if with a fit of the ague and fanciness fancying they were not. What was there about them to confound me in this manner? I gazed, while my brain reeled with a multitude of incoherent thoughts. Not thus he appeared, assuredly not thus, in the vivacity of his waking hours. The same name, the same contour of person, the same day of arrival at the academy, and then his dogged and meaningless imitation of my gait, my voice, my habits, and my manner. Was it, in truth, within the bounds of human possibility, that what I now saw was the result, merely, of the habitual practice of this sarcastic imitation? Awestruck, and with a creeping shudder, I extinguished the lamp, passed silently from the chamber, and left at once the halls of that old academy, never to enter them again. 
After a lapse of some months, spent at home in mere idleness, I found myself a student at Eton. The brief interval had been sufficient to enfeeble my remembrance of the events at Dr. Bransby's, or at least to effect a material change in the nature of the feeling with which I remembered them. The truth, the tragedy of the drama, was no more. I could now find room to doubt the evidence of my senses, and seldom called up the subject at all but with wonder at the extent of human credulity, and a smile at the vivid force of the imagination that I hereditarily possessed. Neither was this species of skepticism likely to be diminished with the character of the life I led at Eton. The vortex of thoughtlessness, of thoughtless folly into which I there so immediately and so recklessly plunged, washed away all but the froth of my past hours, engulfed at once every solid or serious impression, and left to memory only the various levities of a former existence. I do not wish, however, to trace the course of my measure of profligacy. Okay, profligacy here, a profligacy that set at defiance the laws while it eluded the vigilance of the institution. Three years of folly, passed without profit, had but given me root, rooted habits of vice, and added in a somewhat unusual degree to my bodily stature. When, after a week of soul, soulless dissipation, I invited a small party of the most dissolute students to a secret carousal in my chambers. We met at a late hour of the night, for our debaucheries were to be faithfully protracted until morning. The wine flowed freely, and there were not wanting other and perhaps more dangerous seductions, so that the gray dawn had already faintly appeared in the east, while our delirious extravagance was at its height. Madly flushed with cards and intoxication, I was in the act of insisting upon a toast of more than wanted profanity, when my attention was suddenly diverted by the violent, although partial, unclosing of the door of the apartment, and by the eager voice of a servant from without. He said that some person, apparently in great haste, demanded to speak with me in the hall. Wildly excited with wine, the, expectation, the unexpected interruption rather delighted than surprised me. I staggered forward at once, and a few steps brought me to the vestibule of the building. In this low and small room there hung no lamp, and now no light at all was admitted, save that the exceedingly feeble dawn that made its way through the semicircular window. As I put my foot over the threshold, I became aware of the figure of a youth about my own height, and inhabited in a white kerseymere morning frock, cut in the novel fashion of the one I myself wore at the moment course. Okay, that was just me talking. Um, this is the faint light enabled me, this the faint light enabled me to perceive, but the features of his face I could not distinguish. Upon my entering, he strode hurriedly up to me, and seizing me by the arm with a gesture of petulant impatience, whispered the words, William Wilson, in my ear. I grew perfectly sober in an instant. There was that in the manner of the stranger, and in the tremulous shake of his uplifted finger, as he held it between my eyes and the light, which filled me with unqualified amazement. But it was not this that had so violently moved me. It was the pregnancy of solemn admonition in the singular, low, hissing utterance. And above all, it was the character, the tone, the key, of those few simple and familiar, yet whispered syllables, which came with a thousand thronging memory, memories of bygone days and struck upon my soul with the shock of a galvanic battery. Ere I could recover the uses of my senses, 
he was gone. Although this event failed not of a vivid effect upon my disordered imagination, yet was in uh, even, evanescent as vivid. For some weeks, indeed, I busied myself in earnest inquiry, or was wrapped in a cloud of morbid speculation. I did not pretend to disguise from my perception the identity of the singular individual who thus perseveringly interfered with my affairs and harassed me with his insinuated counsel. But who and what was this Wilson, and whence came he, and what were his purposes? Upon neither of these points could I be satisfied, merely ascertaining, in regard to him, that a sudden accident in his family had caused his his removal from Dr. Bransby's academy on the afternoon of the day in which I myself had eloped. But in the brief period I ceased to think upon the subject, my attention being all absorbed in a, a contemplated departure for Oxford. Thither I soon went, the uncalculating vanity of my parents furnishing me with an outfit and annual establishment that would, and I, that would enable me to indulge at will in the luxury already so dear to my heart divide in profuseness of expenditure with the haughtiest heirs of the wealthiest earldoms in Great Britain. Excited by such appliances to vice, my constitutional temperament broke forth with redoubled ardor, and I spurned even the common restraints of decency in the mad infatuation of my revels. But it were absurd to pause in the detail of my extravagance. Let it suffice that among spendthrifts I outherited Herod, and that given... I didn't catch that. Could you try again? Okay, my watch started talking to me. Um, Let it suffice that among spendthrifts I outherited Herod, and that giving name to a multitude of novel follies, I added no brief appendix to the long catalogue of vices than usual in the most dissolute university of Europe. I could hardly be credited, however, that I had, even here, so utterly fallen from the gentlemanly estate as to seek acquaintance with the vilest arts of the gambler by profession, and having become an adept in his despicable science to practice it habitually as a means of increasing my already enormous income at the expense of the weak-minded among my fellow collegians. Such, nevertheless, was the fact, and the very enormity of this offence against all manly and honorable sentiment, proved, beyond doubt, the, the main if not the sole reason for the impunity with which it was committed. Who, indeed, amongst my most abandoned associates, would not rather have disputed the clearest evidence of his senses, than have suspected of such courses, the gay, the frank, the generous William Wilson, the noblest and most commoner at Oxford, him whose follies, said his parasites, were but the follies of youth and unbridled fancy, whose errors but an inimitable whim, whose darkest vice but a careless and dashing extravagance. I had been now two years successfully busied in this way, when there came to the university a young pervenu nobleman, Glendinning, rich, said report, as Herodes Atticus, his riches too as easily acquired. I soon found him of weak intellect, and, of course, marked him as a fitting subject for my skill. I frequently engaged him in play, and contrived, with the gambler's usual art, to let him win considerable sums, the more effectually to entangle him in my snares. 
At length, my schemes being ripe, I met him, with the full intention that this meeting should be final and decisive, at the chambers of a fellow commoner, Mr. Preston, equally um, intimate with both, but who, to do him justice, entertained not even a remote suspicion of my design. To give to this a better coloring, I had contrived to have assembled a party of some eight or ten, and was solicitously careful that the introduction of cards should appear accidental, and originate in the proposal of my contemplated dupe himself. To be brief upon a vile topic, none of the low finesse was omitted, so customary upon similar occasions, that it is a just matter for wonder how any are still found so besotted as to fall its victim. We had protracted our fitting, sitting far into the night, and I had at length effected the maneuver of getting Glendinning as my sole antagonist. The game, too, was my favorite, a cart. The rest of the company, in, uh, interested in the extent of our play, had abandoned their own cards and were standing around us as spectators. The parvenu, who had been induced by my artifice, artifices in the early part of the evening to drink deeply, now shuffled, dealt, or played with the wild nervousness of manner for which his intoxication, I thought, might partially, but could not altogether account. In a very short period, he had become debtor to a large amount, when having taken a long draught of port, he did precisely what I had been coolly anticipating. He proposed to double our already extravagant stakes. With the well-feigned show of reluctance, and not until after my repeated refusal had seduced him into some angry words that gave a color of pique to my compliance, did I finally comply. The result, of course, did, not, uh, did but prove how entirely the prey was in my toils. In less than an hour he had quadrupled his debt. For some time his countenance had been losing the florid tinge lent it by the wine, but now, to my astonishment, I perceived that it had grown to a pallor truly fearful. I say to my astonishment, Glendinning had been rep uh, rep represented to my eager inquiries as immeasurably wealthy, and the sums that he had as yet lost, although in themselves vast, could not, I suppose, very seriously annoy, but much less so violently affect him. That he was overcome by the wine just swallowed was the idea that most readily presented itself, and, rather with a view to the preservation of my own character in the eyes of my associates than from any less interested motive, I was about to insist, peremptorily, upon a discontinuance of the play, when some expressions at my elbow from among the company, and an ejaculation uh, evincing utter despair on the part of Glendinning, gave me to understand that I had effected his total ruin under circumstances that, rendering him an object for the pity of all, should have protected him from the ill offices even of a fiend. I think that was the longest sentence I have ever read. Um, what now might have been conducted, it is hard, it is difficult to say. The pitiable condition of my dupe had thrown an air of embarrassed gloom over all, and for some moments a profound silence was maintained, during which I could not help feeling my cheeks tingle with the many burning glances of scorn or reproach cast upon me by the less abandoned of the party. I will even own that an intolerable weight of anxiety was for a brief instant lifted from my bosom by the sudden and extraordinary interruption that ensued. The wide, heavy folding doors of the apartment were all at once thrown open to their full extent with the vigorous and rushing impetuosity that extinguished, as if by magic, every candle in the room. 
Their light and dying enabled us just to perceive that a stranger had entered, about my own height and closely muffled in a cloak. The darkness, however, was now total, and we could only feel that he was standing in our midst. Before any of us could recover from the extreme astonishment into which this rudeness had thrown us, thrown all, we heard the voice of the intruder. Gentlemen, he said in a low, distinct, and never-to-be-forgotten whisper that thrilled to the very marrow of my bones, Gentlemen, I make no apology for this behavior, because in thus behaving I am but fulfilling a duty. You are, beyond doubt, uninformed of the true character of the person who has tonight won at Eckhart a large sum of money from Lord Glendening. I will therefore put you upon an expeditious and decisive plan of obtaining this very necessary information. Please to examine, at your leisure, the inner linings of the cuff of his left sleeve, and the several little packages that may be found in the somewhat capacious pockets of his embroidered morning wrapper. While he spoke, so profound was the stillness that one might have heard a pin drop upon the floor. In ceasing, he departed at once, and as abruptly as he entered, can I, shall I describe my sensations? Must I say that I felt all the horrors of the damned? Most assuredly, I had little time given for reflection. Many hands roughly seized me upon the spot, and lights were immediately reprocured. A search ensued. In the lining of my sleeve were found all the court cards essential in a cart, and in the pockets of my wrapper a number of packs, facsimiles of those used at our sittings, with the single exception that mine were of a species called, technically, arrondes, the honors being slightly convex at the end, the lower card slightly convex at the sides. In this disposi disposition, the dupe who cuts as customarily at the length of the pack will invariably find that he cuts as antagonist in honor, while the gambler cutting at the Breath will, as certainly, cut nothing for his victim that may count in the records of the game. Any burst of indignation upon this discovery would have affected me less than the silent contempt or the sarcastic composure with which it was received. Mr. Wilson, said our host, stooping to remove from beneath his feet an exceedingly luxurious cloak of rare furs, Mr. Wilson, this is your property. The weather was cold, and, upon quitting my own room, I had thrown a cloak over my dressing wrapper, putting it off upon reaching the scene of play. I presume it is super-regular—super-super—super—okay, hmm. that's a normal word, but I just can't pronounce it—to seek here, eyeing the folds of the garments with a bitter smile, for any further evidence of your skill— Indeed, we have had enough. You will see the necessity, I hope, of quitting Oxford, at all events of quitting instantly my chambers. Abased, humbled to the dust as I then was, it is probable that I should have resented this galling language by immediate personal violence, had not my whole attention been at the moment arrested by a fact of the most startling character. The cloak that I had worn was of a rare description of fur. How rare, how extravagantly costly, I shall, not, I shall not venture to say. Its fashion, too, was of my own fantastic invention, for I was fastidious to an absurd degree of coxcombry in matters of this frivolous nature. When, therefore, Mr. Preston reached me with that, uh, 
reached me that which he had picked up upon the floor and near the folding doors of the apartment. It was with an astonishment, nearly bordering upon terror, that I perceived my own already hanging on my arm, where I had no doubt unwittingly placed it, and that, and that the one presented me was but its exact counterpart in every, in even the, mo even the minutest possible particular. The singular being who had so disastrously exposed me, had been muffled, I remembered, in a cloak, and none had been worn at all by any of the members of our party, with the exception of myself. Retaining some presence of mind, I took the one offered me by Preston, placed it, unnoticed, over my own, left the apartment with a resolute scowl of defiance, and next morning, ere dawn of day, commenced a jur hurried journey from Oxford to the continent, in a perfect agony of horror and and shame. I fled in vain. My evil destiny pursued me as if in exultation, and proved indeed that the exercise of its mysteries dominion had at, as yet only begun. Scarcely had I set foot in Paris ere I had fresh evidence of the detestable in interest taken by this Wilson in my concerns. Years flew while I exercised no relief. Villain, at Rome, with how untimely, yet with how spectral and officiousness stepped he in between me and my ambition, at Vienna, too, at Berlin, and at Moscow, where, in truth, had I not bitter cause to curse him within my heart? From his, in, from his inscrutable tyranny did I at length flee, panic-stricken as from a pestilence, and to the very ends of the earth I fled in vain. And again, and again, in secret communion with my own spirit, would I demand the questions, who is he, whence came he, and what are his objects? But no matter was there found. And then I scrutinized with a minute scrutiny the forms and the methods and the leading traits of his, of his impertinent supervision. But even here there was very little upon which to base a conjecture. It was noticeable, indeed, that in one of the multiplied instances in which he had of late crossed my path, had he so crossed it except to frustrate those schemes, or to disturb those actions, that, if fully carried out, might have resulted in bitter mischief. Poor justification, this, in truth, for any authority so imperiously assumed. Poor indemnity for natural rights of self-agency so pretentiously, so insultingly denied. I had also been forced to notice that my tormentor, for a very long period of time, while scrupulously and with miraculous dexterity maintaining his whim of an identity of, uh, of apparel with myself, had so contrived it in the execution of his varied interference with my will that I saw not, not at any moment the features of his face. Be Wilson what he might, this, at least, was but the veriest of affection, or of folly, of affectation, or of folly. Could he, for any instant, have supposed that, in my admonister, admonisher uh, at Eton, in the destroyer of my honor at Oxford, in him who thwarted my ambition at Rome, my revenge at Paris, my passionate love at Naples, or what he falsely termed my avarice in Egypt, that in this my arch enemy and evil genius could fail to recognize that William Wilson of my schoolboy days, the namesake, the companion, the rival, the hated and dreaded rival at Dr. Bransby's, impossible, 
but let me hasten to the last eventful scene of the drama. Thus far, I had succumbed supinely to this imperious do uh, dom domination. The sentiment of deep awe in which I habitually regarded the elevated character, the majestic wisdom, the apparent omnipresence and omnipotence of Wilson added to a feeling of even terror with which certain other traits in his nature and assumptions inspired me had operated hitherto to impress me with an idea of my own utter weakness and helplessness and to suggest an implicit although bitterly reluctant submission to his arbitrary will but of late days i had given myself up entirely to wine and its maddening influence upon my hereditary temper rendered me more and more impatient of control I began to murmur, to hesitate, to resist, and with it only fancy that induced me to believe that, with the increase of my own firmness, that of my tormentor underwent a proportional diminution. Be this as it may, I now began to feel the inspiration of a burning hope, and at length nurtured in my secret thoughts a stern and desperate resolution that I would submit no longer to be enslaved. It, it was at Rome during the Carnival of 18- that I attended a masquerade in the Palazzo of the Neapolitan Duke de Broglio. I had indulged more freely than usual in the excesses of the wine table, and now the suffocating atmosphere of the crowded rooms irritated me beyond endurance. The difficulty, too, of forcing my way through the mazes of the company con contributed not a little to the ruffling of my temper, for I was anxiously seeking, let me not say with what unworthy motive, the young, the gay, the beautiful wife of the aged and doting de Broglio. With a too unscrupulous confidence, she had previously communicated to me the secret of the costume in which she would be, inhab be habited, and now, having caught a glimpse of her person, I was hurryingly, hurrying to make my way into her presence. At this moment, I felt a light hand placed upon my shoulder, and that ever-remembered, low, damnable whisper within my ear. In an absolute frenzy of wrath, I turned at once upon him, who had thus interrupted me, and seized him violently by the collar. He was attired, as I had expected, in a costume altogether similar to my own, wearing a Spanish cloak of blue velvet, begirt about the waist with a crimson belt sustaining a rapier. A mask of black silk entirely covered his face. Scoundrel, I said in a voice husky with rage, while every syllable I uttered seemed as new fuel to my fury. Scoundrel, impostor, accursed villain, you shall not, you shall not dog me unto death. Follow me or I stab you where you stand. And I broke my way from the ballroom into a small antechamber adjoining, dragging him unresistingly with me as I went. Upon entering, I thrust him furiously from me. He staggered against the wall while I closed the door with an oath and commanded him to draw. He hesitated but for an instant, then, with a slight sigh, drew in silence and put himself upon his defense. The contest was brief indeed. It was frantic with, I was frantic with every species of wild excitement and felt within my single arm the energy and power of a multitude. In a few seconds I forced him by sheer strength against the wainscoting, and thus getting him at mercy, plunged my sword with brute ferocity repeatedly through and through his bosom. 
At that instant, some person tried the latch at the, of the door. I hastened to prevent an intrusion, and then immediately returned to my dying antagonist. But what human language can adequately portray that astonishment, that horror that possessed me at the spectacle then presented to view? The brief moment in which I averted my eyes had been sufficient to produce, apparently, a material change in the arrangements at the upper or further end of the room. A large mirror, so at first it seemed to me in my confusion, now stood where none had been perceptible before, and as I stepped up to it in extremity of terror, my mine own image, but with features all pale and dabbled in blood, advanced to meet me with a feeble and tottering gait. Thus it appeared, I say, but was not. It was my antagonist. It was Wilson, who then stood before me in the agonies of his dissolution. His mask and cloak lay where he had thrown them upon the floor. Not a thread in all his raiment, not a line in all the marked and singular lineaments of his face, which was not, even in the most absolute identity, mine own. It was Wilson, but he spoke no longer in a whisper, and I could have fancied that I myself was speaking while he said, You have conquered, and I yield. Yet henceforth art thou also dead, dead to the world, to heaven, and to hope. In me didst thou exist, and in my death, see by this image, which is thine own, how utterly thou hast murdered thyself. The End